Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 151, The Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven. And this week on the podcast, I want us to begin to look at the kingdom of heaven. And I've taken this phrase, The Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven, from a really good book that I've been slowly working my way through on the Sermon on the Mount. And I realized over the past several weeks that as we've talked about the power under kingdom of Jesus and how that contrasts with the power over ways that um, the ways of this world operate and how that has caught up many Christians into adopting a power over way of living and assuming that it is godly by its very nature, I realized the more I challenge the partisan political discussions and the more I challenge the way Christians think about themselves and about truth and about the way they're called to live in this world, the more I realize that one of the main reasons why there's so much confusion is because we've more or less forgotten about the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, if you're not familiar, is from Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and it's Jesus's most famous sermon, most likely a compilation of things that he said during the course of his life. But what is presented in the Sermon on the Mount is pretty radical and it's pretty challenging. And I'm always learning and growing the more I familiarize myself with it. And I thought this would be a great direction for us to go in the podcast because instead of us making leaps or making claims that we don't really know where they find their source, I realized that the Sermon on the Mount is where we all ought to find our source. Who are the people in this world who are blessed? What does Jesus mean by righteousness? And how is it possible that those the Jews of the first century saw as the most righteous people around were declared by Jesus to have no part at all in his kingdom? So what I want to do with no timeline, not much of an agenda, is just do a little bit of an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount today in this episode, and then in subsequent weeks, we will get into the sermon and begin to just really explore what it says, what it means, how it might look in the lives of the church and in individual Christians, um, and to shape the way that we think about ourselves and about the world. And so without any more of an introduction, let's just get right into it. As we begin this week's episode, I just want to give you a brief update about where I've been for the past several weeks. I've had a few of you reach out. Uh, Some of you were concerned when you didn't see an episode pop up, and I actually appreciate that. It lets me know that you're as excited as about the podcast as I am, and and thank you for for those of you who reached out. Um, Yes, things are fine. Uh, life in our church has gotten pretty busy for me over the past several weeks, which is always, which is always just fine. And meeting with members and trying to um, to be the pastor of a, of a shared ministry church, which which always comes with new demands and new expectations. And I'm trying to lead our church through a particularly um, difficult situation right now. And um, that has taken up a little bit more of my time than I had anticipated, as well as, of course, you all know, last week was Thanksgiving. And for me to release my episodes on Thursday means that I'm literally having to prepare a, a message for the Thanksgiving day, which I just wasn't ready to do. We went out of town for a few days and visited with my sister's 
whose families both live in South Carolina, and we had a great time with them. And I just said, you know what, I'll get to this when we get back. And so here we are, and I'm getting back to it just now, deciding to launch us in the direction of Jesus's teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. And what I would like to do before we get started and before we really jump into it is to remind you about a several episodes on the podcast from way back toward the beginning. Um, these are episodes that if you have listened to already, I would encourage you to potentially re-listen. But if you have never listened to episodes um, 29, 30, and 31, I would highly, highly encourage you to do so. I more or less pieced together what I called a little recapitulation series, and it was recapitulating the garden, recapitulating the wilderness, and then recapitulating the people of God. And then I believe it was episode, maybe episode 33, 32 or 33, um, that was titled, Who is God's Family? And I spent a lot of time in those episodes doing what for me, in my own mind, is probably the most formative conceptual framework um, that I operate by when I read the Bible and then when I teach it. And that is that in the beginning, God made the whole world and all of mankind was represented by Adam and Eve in the garden. And as Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they were representative of all mankind. And when the Lord called Abram and promised to make a great nation out of him, the promises that the Lord made to Abram were in direct response to the broken promises of of the people of God across the world. And so what the Old Testament does is it actually sets Israel up as a nation as the antidote, as the corrective measure to all mankind. And the reason why that's significant is because when you look at Israel, you aren't just talking about them as individuals. You're not just talking about them as the people of God. You have to recognize that the Lord is setting them up to be the representatives of what he wants all of the world to become. Of course, you don't have to read far in the Old Testament to realize that Israel finds itself, even though they are in covenant relationship with the Lord, tend to go the same way that Adam and Eve went and tend to go the same way that the nations went and find that they are, in reality, no better off having received the law, per se, than those who didn't because they find that they are just as incapable of keeping it as the rest of the world. And so what happens is Jesus comes not as a replacement for Israel or for all humanity, but as someone who stands in for them as their representative. And in those three episodes, recapitulating the garden, recapitulating the wilderness, and recapitulating the people of God, my point was to show how Jesus throughout the New Testament represents Israel, who, as I just said, is representative of all the people of the earth, and therefore Jesus is also representative of all the people of the earth. And everything that Jesus has come to do and everything that Jesus is has been put forth by God to be the corrective measure and the redeeming measure for everything that both Israel as a nation was supposed to become and as all mankind 
was originally supposed to become. And in that third episode, the one that I called Recapitulating the People of God, I did a real quick flyover of the first several chapters of the book of Matthew. As you know, the Sermon on the Mount, as I've already said, is in Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. But the way the story begins in Matthew is that it starts with a large genealogy, which roots Jesus's identity firmly to Abraham and firmly then also to King David. But remember, Abraham and the promises made to him were in direct contrast to the broken, fallen nature of all mankind. And so when Jesus is connected to Abraham, he's connected to the one through whom God made the promise that he was going to bless all the nations of the earth. And of course, by connecting Jesus's lineage to King David, he is setting Jesus up as not only the blessing to all the nations, but the king through whom those blessings will come. Well, in Matthew chapter 2, we had this really interesting story, and Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt to escape King Herod and his paranoia that a new king has been born in Israel and his desire to rid the world of any threats to his reign by having all of the baby boys two years old or younger murdered. Jesus, of course, is rescued in much the same way that Moses was rescued in Egypt um, by going to Egypt. Instead of fleeing the, the, the scene there, Egypt and Jesus's narrative becomes, for a brief moment anyways, a bit of a safe haven. But nonetheless, we read in Matthew chapter 2 that when um, King Herod had died and Jesus was free to return to his hometown, we're told that this was to fulfill the prophecy which was spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And it's a really weird prophecy, uh, especially around Christmas time or the season of Advent, which we are currently in, when we talk about prophecy or when you hear Bible verses posted on Christian or um, Christmas cards, rather, of unto us a son is born and unto us a, a child is given and the government will be on his shoulders. You know, we like to quote Isaiah 7, which is that passage there, and, and just apply it directly to Jesus. And we imagine that prophecy in the Bible is just like that. There's a promise made to the people. Everybody knows that promise isn't happening now. It's going to happen sometime in the future. And we as Christians read those promises and just assume, well, they were talking about Jesus. Now Jesus has come. Look how Jesus has fulfilled that prophecy. And in some instances, that's fine. That's an accurate way to read the Bible. But in other instances, it doesn't make much sense. And this Matthew chapter two, where Matthew tells us that out of Egypt, I've called my son, is Jesus fulfilling prophecy, you and I would need to go back to the book of Hosea and read. And what we discover there is that in chapter two of Hosea, the Lord is simply recounting the events whereby he rescued Israel, his chosen people, out of their bondage in Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai where he gave them the law. When Hosea says, out of Egypt, I've called my son, he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking, as Moses told Pharaoh, Israel, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. You need to release him to come worship me in the wilderness. If you do not, I will kill your firstborn son. 
And several more times throughout the Old Testament, Israel as a nation is in fact referred to as God's son. The kings, as you and I, as you probably know, will later be referred to as the son of God. And this is ultimately what is thought of when Jesus uses the title to describe himself. But what Matthew is doing is he's showing us that when Israel was brought out of Egypt and Jesus, centuries later, left Egypt to go back to his hometown, the similarities, the pattern repeating, the recapitulation overlays Jesus's life onto Israel's life as a nation and says that the things that happened to Israel that are now happening to Jesus are a fulfillment of prophecy. Even though Matthew chapter 2 is not giving a, or I'm sorry, Hosea chapter 2 or Hosea 11 is not giving a prophecy. Out of Egypt, I called my son wasn't a prophetic statement of something yet to happen. It was a description of something that had centuries before already happened. But here, Jesus is rewalking the path that Israel as a nation once walked. And in the places where they stumbled and fell, Jesus will succeed. And so we get his narrative, we get his genealogy, and then we are told that it was fulfillment of scripture that Jesus would be called out of Egypt and the Lord called him and has now moved him forth. Well, as you read through the gospel of Matthew, you come to chapter three and John the Baptist is out baptizing people um, in the Jordan River as they are confessing their sins. And Jesus comes out to John and he says to, John looks at Jesus and he's like, I can't baptize you. You're going to have to baptize me like this is backwards. You're, you're the king. You're the coming savior. And Jesus says to John, it's fitting for you to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, John, it's the right thing for you to do to baptize me, not because I've got sins to confess and not because I've done anything wrong that needs repented of but rather because Jesus, in the same way that Israel walked through the Jordan River in going to their promised land, and in the same way that they passed through the Red Sea after being rescued from Egypt, Jesus too is going to pass through the waters. He's going to be baptized into the waters so as to unite himself in perfect solidarity with the people of Israel. And so as Israel was called out of Egypt, tells us from Hosea, which Matthew quotes in chapter two of his gospel, next Israel walked, as you well know, to the edge of the Red Sea and Moses had to part it for the people to walk safely through. Paul picks up on this in the New Testament in the book of 1 Corinthians and tells us that the people of Israel were baptized into the Red Sea. They were washed, cleansed, purified of the, the, the things they left behind in Egypt, if you will, symbolically, and, and, and presented clean and new for a new path going forward, a new people, a new uh, place of worship. Well, Jesus is now doing the same thing. He is being baptized by John in the river and in the river Jordan in the same way that Israel was baptized into the Red Sea. And Jesus says he has to do it to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, it is the right thing that Jesus would stand in the place of his own people as their representative 
and carry on the work they once were called to do, but to do it in perfect righteousness. If you remember the story in the Old Testament as it unfolds, Israel, after walking through the Red Sea and having the Egyptians who sought to follow them and recapture them, drown in the Red Sea, Israel worships the Lord and then comes to Mount Sinai, where Moses then receives the law, where he receives the Ten Commandments. Israel receives that law, don't ultimately know what to do with it. While they're journeying that direction, they get tripped up from time to time and actually experience quite a bit of rough going in the wilderness with the Lord. They complain that they don't have any water. They complain that they don't have any food. And several times the Lord provides them with water from a rock. Other times he provides them with manna. He at one point provides them with quail. They gather manna six days of the week. They don't gather any on the seventh day. You know these stories, they're pretty familiar to you. But what's fascinating is that in the wilderness, when the people of Israel were sent into the promised land to investigate what that was going to be like, their 12 spies go into the land and two of them came back and told the people that the Lord was going to give them a great deliverance and was going to bring them into the promised land. 10 of their spies said that the Lord couldn't do it. And so what happens? The 10 convince the people of Israel that there's no way they can enter the promised land and they are thereby disciplined, if you will, and required to walk 40 years in the wilderness for every day that the spies were on their journey, um, the, at the end of which they came back with a negative report about the land. And so when we read in the book of Deuteronomy, which just means the second law, we are giving the law again to the people who, who wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and ended up dying in the wilderness. And now that their children are grown up, the law is given once again to them who might have been too young to understand it when it was first given by Moses. And so Israel's experience in the wilderness was one of wandering. It was one of aimlessness. It was one of temptation. In fact, 10 distinct times, the people are told to have been grumbling or complaining. Sometimes the Lord sends judgment on them for this. Sometimes he makes their lives a little bit tougher than they otherwise could have been because the people simply were struggling to learn whether they could trust in the Lord. And so in episode 30 of this podcast, I did recapitulating um, the, the wilderness, because when Jesus in Matthew chapter four, as soon as he's baptized by John the Baptist, many of you know, went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, this is fascinating to me. If Jesus needs to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to associate himself perfectly with the people of Israel, and if Matthew says that Hosea's statement about the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt at the Lord's call is likened to Jesus leaving Egypt as a baby to return to his hometown, and then if Israel's experience wandering in the wilderness and that time being met with temptation after temptation and grumbling and grumbling and complaining and whining before the Lord and how he was going to provide for them and then the Lord sending judgment on the people, this in fact is what Jesus does next. Jesus goes into the wilderness at the direction of the Holy Spirit in order to be tempted by the devil and all three instances when Jesus quotes um, in defense of, of Satan's temptations, 
Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 twice. And I won't go into that. You could go back and re-listen to that episode. But what's fascinating is that Jesus's defenses against the enemy's temptations are direct quotations from the three chapters, Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8, in the book of Deuteronomy that specifically recount for these kids who've now grown up what their parents failed to do in the wilderness in failing to trust the Lord. Jesus now, in the wilderness, where he is right after his baptism through the water, which, appear, which happened right after his rescue from Egypt, Jesus now is defeating the enemy in precisely the same temptations that the people of Israel failed. And by doing so, he is setting himself up not only as a new Israel and also a new Moses. Remember, Moses was rescued as a child when wicked Pharaoh made a a decree that all the boys two years old and younger should be killed because he was getting nervous that the slave nation of Israel was getting too big in his um, Egyptian kingdom. But Jesus is now doing precisely what Israel once did, except Jesus is succeeding where Israel failed. And so he is not only representing himself as a new Israel and as a new representative of Israel as a new Moses, but again, Jesus is establishing himself as the one who is the representative for all mankind which is ultimately what Israel was supposed to be. When you come to chapter 5 of Matthew, we now know it, as I've already said, as the Sermon on the Mount. But if we continue with the analogy of Jesus being the one who is now calling out a new people, establishing a new kingdom, and redeeming people through these waters of baptism and, and calling them into something special and something new, What you realize is just as Israel was rescued from Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, they too were brought to a mountain where their leader, Moses, went up to receive the laws of God and the description of the way his people would now faithfully live as his people in his presence and among one another. It's what the Lord established would be righteousness in his way of living, which would be in direct contrast to the kind of righteousness or unrighteousness rather that Israel had experienced living in Egypt for 400 years. In fact, the people in Egypt's way of living did not experience blessing unless they were at the top of the food chain, i.e. unless they were Pharaoh and one of Pharaoh's specially chosen people. In God's kingdom and in Jesus's kingdom, the blessings don't come to those on the top. In fact, they quite readily are extended to those at the bottom. And this is the upside down kingdom of Jesus. This is the power under way of Jesus. This is the serving and the least becoming the greatest and the weak being the strongest. That is Jesus's model for the kingdom. But the way the Sermon on the Mount begins is that Jesus's disciples come to him. He sees them. He goes up on the mountain and he begins to teach them. Now, Matthew is doing something very specific. We can miss it if we don't recognize who Jesus is and what he's ultimately come to do. But there was one other person 
who went up on a mountain and received the teaching of the Lord and then came down to those who wanted to follow it and explained what that teaching was, explained what real righteousness was. And in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in chapter 5, Jesus will say six different times, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, blank. And what Jesus is doing is he is reminding the people, as he will do in early part of the chapter, talking to them about the way the Pharisees have interpreted the laws of God and how Jesus is, in fact, bringing them a, a richer, fuller, truer interpretation of those laws and what they were actually intended to communicate. And what Jesus is doing is not setting up some impossible standard that no one can adhere to. Rather, he is explaining the freedom that is found um, in life in his kingdom. But Jesus is, in fact, setting himself up in Matthew 5. And Matthew's making it very clear for us as readers that this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is setting himself up as a new Moses, a new leader of a new people bringing to the world the laws of the Lord. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, we are told in no uncertain terms by God himself that he will one day raise up someone like Moses who will lead the people and the people will need to listen to him. Well, that in fact is Jesus. Jesus is the one who has come to be the new Moses. He's come to be the, the new Israel. He's come to be the representative of the new humanity. And as the image-bearing representation of God, which all people were called to be in Genesis 1, Jesus is going to show the world what it truly means to be human. Jesus is going to show the world who among us are truly blessed. Jesus is going to explain to the world how true righteousness is formed in the lives of real people. Jesus is going to show us what it means to have a life of public righteousness and one of private righteousness. Jesus is going to expose the hypocrisy that attempts to present itself as more righteous than it actually is and begin to believe that certain people, by virtue of their external righteousness, are in fact better than other people. Jesus will expose the sinister, hidden, and oftentimes not spoken about aspects of religious living that really does destruction in the world instead of bringing life and hope and blessing. The Sermon on the Mount is rich, and it's rich because there, are, there is no way of escape. Jesus literally has come to shine the light of the, of the Lord's truth into the dark places of our world. And sometimes that is in public presentation of injustice. Sometimes that is in private places of individual human hearts. Jesus deals with both. He always deals with both. And so what I have heard and have liked is for some authors to call the Sermon on the Mount the beginner's guide to the kingdom of heaven. We have been invited in to an upside-down kingdom. We have been called to repentance from the, all of the ways that we have begun to believe of that God's kingdom consists in certain things and have been invited into something completely new and completely transformative. 
but it's going to challenge every one of the norms that you and I think it means to belong to God's kingdom or to be privileged in some way within his kingdom. And that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And Matthew is doing a masterful job of showing us that the one giving this sermon isn't just someone standing aloof who's telling us all what to do. Jesus, as you well know, walks the Sermon on the Mount in his own life. And I've thought for some time, I've never actually done it, but I've I've thought to just go through the sermon and on a Word document or something and in the margins of every single passage that Jesus gives, just give some example or another scripture reference to another scene in the Gospels where Jesus is quite literally doing that very thing. Um, You know, the the turning of the other cheek and the... um, uh, you know, not offering, you know, insult for insult, but uh, responding in love and grace. I mean, this is Jesus's entire life, the way that he prays, he teaches his disciples in other passages, how to pray. This is in fact, how Jesus prays. The people who are blessed in his explanations, this is Jesus's very life. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be well received. It means that the blessings of the Lord are on these kinds of people. And so for our um, purposes as Christians in the church is that our hearts and eyes and minds need to be set on the same kinds of people in this world. And so that's what I want to get into over the next several weeks. I know that I did a little flyby there and that I hope was helpful for you. I go into a little more detail about all the things that I just said in those several episodes toward the beginning of the podcast, but I never read the Bible without keeping these things in mind. If I read an Old Testament narrative, I'm first going to see, is this dealing with Israel as a whole nation or is this dealing with a certain individual like Samson or Jonah or David? And knowing what I know about the way Jesus recapitulates individuals' lives like he does with Moses, but also an entire nation's life like he does with Israel as well as all of humanity, I know that when I read those narratives, if I read something about Samson, it is poor Bible study for me to make a one-to-one correlation between Samson as an individual person and me as an individual person. Rather, what I need to do is recognize how does Samson embody the whole people of God as one of their leaders, i.e. one of their judges, which is precisely how you should read this narrative, and then to ask what sort of dysfunctions are created on a communal level as a result of viewing this individual leader's life the way that he chooses to. What type of judgments does Samson enter into that are indicative or recapitulated once again into the people of Israel? And once I see that, I can begin to see the way Jesus reshapes that world, how Jesus thinks differently about leadership than the way Samson once did, but not, again, not just as an individual, but as a representative of an entire community. So Jesus is the framework for the individual Christian to mirror his or her life after. But Jesus is also the embodiment of the entire church and what we as a community are supposed to become. 
This is why in the New Testament, the church is referred to as the body of Christ. And I may have told this story before on the podcast, but this just occurred to me. But I, I had a, a youth leader years ago in, in the youth group where I was serving as the youth pastor who came to me and said, I don't know, I mean, I just find this really hard to, to picture myself, you know, as the bride of Christ. Like I know, you know, in Ephesians 5, it says that the church is the bride of Christ and I just can't picture myself being married to Jesus. And I'm like, of course you can't because that's not what Paul's t- saying there. Paul's not saying that you individual man are married to Jesus. (laughs) He's saying that the church as a community, as a whole, is the embodiment of someone who is married to Christ. This is a metaphor for one, but it's spoken about for us as a community. And this is something that has to be kept in tension all the time. How do I, as an individual follower of Jesus, conform my life to his life But it's also how do we in our communal church life form ourselves as the embodiment, as a unit made up of many members, of course, but one body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, how do we as one body imitate and represent Jesus on the earth? And so when he gives his Sermon on the Mount, we need to keep in mind he's not just addressing individual people who may or may not choose to follow him. He's calling communities of people. We would call them churches, but he's calling communities of his followers to rally around a vision of the kingdom that is summed up in the words he gives in Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. That's what it means to approach this as the beginner's guide to the kingdom of heaven. The gist of what Jesus is saying is when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are legitimately praying that the will of the Lord as he wants it done in heaven will come to the earth. We want to see heaven coming to the earth. And Jesus is outlining for us what it would look like in the lives of those citizens if heaven actually invaded the earth, if heaven actually came down. And he is in fact calling people to live in such a way that they really believe that, even if it appears that you would be disadvantaged in this world for believing so and for choosing to live that way. Jesus knows that. He is no stranger to the disadvantages that serving the Lord in heaven's ways will will cause a person on the earth. Trust me, he was murdered for this very reason. So when he lays out the standards of who is blessed and who is not, and what it means to be truly righteous, he's going to expose all of the hypocrisy that it's found its home very comfortably in churches, very comfortably in Christians and has been avoided and talked away and dismissed by people who do not want to get real with Jesus. Jesus says, my kingdom is free, but it will cost you everything. And he's exactly right. It is a free offer to anyone who will receive it and to anyone who will receive him, but it will not come without a cost. 
In fact, in several places in the Gospels, Jesus exhorts us to count the cost before we even decide if we'd like to follow him. And so what I'm going to do is present to us all or share with us all, learn with you, grow with you together about what he says regarding the kingdom of heaven, what it means to truly follow him. And together, I hope that we will begin to unpack and unfold and see the riches and the beauty inherent in Jesus's way of living that is a blessing not only to us, but also to the world. And so that's all the time that I have for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's really exciting to be back with you again. And as I've done for the past several episodes, I'm going to do a little podcast outro that my cousin Kelly recorded for me. She hosts a podcast called Survivor Sanctuary, which is a place for survivors of sexual abuse, sometimes at the hands of those in the church. And the comfort and encouragement and the critical thinking and the wisdom and the navigation that she is laying out for so many survivors as she herself is one and is offering hope and is offering Jesus, particularly to a community of survivors who, because of the abuse they've experienced at the hands of religious people in churches, don't often feel that they have a safe space in a church. And so she is meeting people right where they are as a Facebook page and is doing tremendous, tremendous work. If you're looking for an encouraging podcast, I would highly recommend you find her. Her name is Kelly Downing. Again, she's the host of the Survivor Sanctuary podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, and I'm sure that you will be blessed by it. So that's all I've got for this week. Talk to you next time. You've been listening to Unbinding the Bible. If you find these episodes valuable and you haven't already done so, please leave a rating or review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these episodes. And then go and share one or more of your favorite episodes with a friend. You can also reach out to Joshua with any comments or questions to unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.